0: Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.
1: Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines on the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Pope Francis went viral all over the world this weekend. Photos of him wearing a bright white puffer jacket flooded the internet. People are praising Pope Francis's
0: drip. Showing him wearing sunglasses and a stylish white puffer jacket, the images of the so-called Balenciaga Pope reached hundreds of thousands of people.
1: But it turns out the Pope has not radically updated his wardrobe. It was, in fact, an AI-generated image, a total fake. We look at why some tech bosses are turning to the Vatican for moral guidance as new and ever more sophisticated waves of artificial intelligence take hold.
0: Y Pope Francis is strengthening regulations in the fight against abuse. He recently published a new version of the motu proprio, Vos Estis Lux Mundi, published in 2019.
1: The Pope has issued a definitive update to Vos Estis Lux Mundi, his landmark instruction on the Vatican's procedural norms for dealing with the scourge of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. I'm Ricardo de Silva, and this is inside the Vatican. If you have been looking for a way to grow closer to Jesus' Lent, we have found a great opportunity for you. Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Schörschlecht is a podcast where you learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. Daily Rosary Meditations is the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Each day, a different topic is explored, allowing you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions while you pray the rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary, all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app. Just search Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net. Good morning from a slightly warmer New York, Jerry, with a few more signs of spring.
2: Good afternoon from a beautiful spring afternoon in Rome, Ricardo. Just walked along the Tiber Bank and it was really beautiful.
1: Wonderful. Balenciaga Pope. That's what the internet is calling this. Photos of Pope Francis wearing a luxury $3,000-plus oversized white puffer jacket went viral this weekend. A single tweet of the Pope's updated winter wardrobe invited 25,000 retweets. Can you believe that, Jerry? Google Trends reported a dramatic increase in Pope-related searches. But however realistic and convincing the photo might have appeared, it was a total fake. When I first saw it on Instagram, I don't know about you, Jerry, but when I first saw it, I thought it was a surprising fashion statement from an understated Pope. And I didn't question its authenticity until I scrolled on and then I saw that the Pope was also in these bright white sneakers. BuzzFeed news reporter Ryan Broderick said that this image was, quote, the first real mass-level AI misinformation case. And then the creator of the image, who himself was raised Catholic but doesn't practice anymore, his name is Pablo Xavier, he said that he created the image because, quote, I just thought it would be funny to see the Pope in a funny jacket. And he did this all while tripping on mushrooms. And he said that he has no ill will toward Pope Francis. And, quote, I didn't even think about the potential impact. Mr. Xavier went on to recognize that such AI-generated images are, quote, definitely going to get serious if they don't start implementing laws to regulate it. And he added, quote, using it for public figures might be the line. So while the image in itself does not make an inside the Vatican newsworthy story, given the Pope nor anyone else at the Vatican had a hand in its creation, it does invite us to explore the question that Mr. Xavier poses. What is the moral position on artificial intelligence? Has the Vatican said anything about this rapidly growing sophistication of algorithms and artificial intelligence and the frightening capacity they have to deceive us? Jerry, at the beginning of this week, Pope Francis did have something to say about AI. And we might have mistaken this for being a response to his image that's circling around the internet. But this was, in fact, a long planned conversation. What did Pope Francis say? earlier in the week about artificial intelligence?
2: Well, Pope Francis has been following this question for four or five years, as far as I can remember. The whole question of artificial intelligence is a new frontier in the world of technology, in the world of what's going to happen to us. I mean, I remember writing four years ago, I think, an article about the impact artificial intelligence could have on truck drivers in the United States, when most of them would be without a job because of driverless trucks being used. The Vatican is concerned as here is a development in science without any ethical base. It has sought to engage and has had positive responses from a lot of the leaders in the tech world, the big companies. And this weekend, he also had met some of these people from some of the big tech companies, seeking to ensure that the human person does not result as the victim of the search for advances in science and the quest for profit through this.
1: Jerry, you know, the Pope's address this week on artificial intelligence is part of a series called the Minerva Dialogues. The Minerva Dialogues is probably the conversation through which the Vatican became alert to the importance of artificial intelligence. It's a series that dates a number of years now. The initial conversations involved a number of people from Silicon Valley. Now they draw people across the world involved in questions around artificial intelligence But really, this was the Vatican attending conferences like South by Southwest and other kind of tech conferences here in the U.S., big tech conferences that really started to talk about these questions around AI. And then the Vatican, through its interaction with the United Nations, the Food and Agriculture Organization, also started hearing more and more about how artificial intelligence is coming to the fore in making decisions about people's well-being. And so it had real questions about how a machine decides somebody's fate, right? Whether it's on questions of migration, whether it's on questions of food distribution. And Pope Francis is obviously worried about that. So Pope Francis's key focus in terms of artificial intelligence is on how this is generating inequality.
2: Yes, and you can see it in the whole legal system where you can get profiling and you can get really the prejudices that have been in the present pre-artificial intelligence systems risk being transformed into the artificial intelligence, compounding the discrimination that is already there in terms of profiling, in terms of the justice system, in so many different ways. And how do you protect people against these enormous leaps in technology and in science? and ensure that people's dignity is protected. It's a whole big area. And the Vatican, as I said, has been on this question. If our listeners want to go into the Council of Culture, what was the Pontifical Council of Culture, they will find there many of the past conferences which the Vatican has been involved in. The Pope is very conscious of this.
1: I think that's a really important note for us to stress. Pope Francis is critical of these technologies, but he is also welcoming of these technologies, right? He's no troglodyte. I mean, he said in this talk on Monday that it has the potential, artificial intelligence, to contribute in a positive way to the future of humanity, and we cannot dismiss it. While at the same time, he is also certain that the potential will only be realized if there is, quote, a constant and consistent commitment on the part of those developing these technologies to act ethically and responsibly.
2: Yes, and I remember another issue that came up some years ago was the question of weapons of war that are guided by artificial intelligence where no human mind is controlling. These are programmed to react in a certain way. And what is the concern here is... Are all these different developments in the different fields, in science, in medicine, in so many areas, are they moving outside of the control of the human being? This is a real big concern because you can see the scenario of a very scary world if it goes outside human control. And this is a very serious concern, which is still not on the horizon of many people.
1: In the latest intervention that Pope Francis made this past Monday, one of the things he said is, when a machine is making a decision, such data can be contaminated by societal prejudices and preconceptions. And then he said, quote, and this is a really powerful quote, a person's past behavior should not be used to deny him or her the opportunity to change, grow, and contribute to society. We cannot allow algorithms to limit or condition respect for human dignity or to exclude compassion, mercy, forgiveness, and above all, the hope that people are able to change.
2: Absolutely. This is where I say the, the concern is here that at the end of the day, with all these powerful instruments, does the human person still control? Is it working for the benefit and the enrichment of the human person? Or is it on another track entirely, like these weapons that are driven by artificial intelligence today.
1: But Jerry, maybe turning back quickly to wrap up this conversation, let's turn back to the Pope and his puffer jacket, right? There is a commitment that the Vatican drafted called the Rome Call. And in March 2020, the Vatican was able to get universities, engineering faculties, newsrooms, governments, global tech bosses from IBM and Microsoft together to sign this commitment. And they keep adding new people to this commitment. And specifically, this commitment is looking at principles in the creation of artificial intelligence that it wants to safeguard, such as transparency, inclusion, accountability, impartiality, reliability, security, and privacy in what it calls algo ethics or AI ethics, algorithm ethics. Do you think that Pope Francis will use this AI-generated image of himself to draw attention to what the Vatican is doing when it comes to AI ethics?
2: I am skeptical whether he will actually choose to focus on himself no more than he did when the street artists portrayed him as Batman. I mean, we have artificial intelligence. We don't want it to transform to artificial deception. I I think this is going to be a lasting concern in this pontificate and in the future pontificates. This is a rapidly developing area of human science, human technology that is going to be with us for the rest of our lives.
1: I mean, looking at the US itself, the former President Donald Trump right, has used this AI technology to generate an image of him praying, kneeling down, hands clasped, and he tweeted this image. And we know that this was an AI-generated image. So it's being already used, I think, to manipulate and send specific messages And we'll probably see it used to scary effect in political campaigns going forward. So we need to pay attention. And I think what the Vatican has to say about this is crucial if we are to have moral guidance from a voice that has some respect, at least, when it comes to these issues.
2: I think this is an area where the religions can come together as a strong force to ensure that humanity is not deceived through its own products.
1: Yeah, and I know that the Vatican was trying to get Abu Dhabi to sign this Rome call as well, and you know that was impacted by the pandemic. So across the world, across religions, across cultures and tech companies, this is a live issue that the Vatican is doing its best to address. After the break, we look at a revised instruction by Pope Francis on dealing with sexual abuse in the church. If you have been looking for a way to grow closer to Jesus' Lent, we have found a great opportunity for you. Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Scherschlicht is a podcast where you learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. Daily Rosary Meditations is the fastest-growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Each day a different topic is explored, allowing you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions. While you pray the Rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a Rosary, all in under twenty minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app. Just search Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net. Pope Francis has promulgated into official church law new procedures for dealing with allegations of sexual abuse and its potential cover-up across the ranks of church leadership, from cardinals through to the lay leaders of the church holding positions of power. Until now, vos estis lux mundi, the instruction which brought dramatic reforms to the way the Vatican had been dealing church-wide with allegations of sexual abuse and its reporting down the chain of command, had been issued on an experimental basis for three years. But on April 30th, it will become official church law. Most of the document has stayed the same, but there are a few important changes. Jerry, what does the revised but now permanent church law on dealing with sexual abuse include?
2: Well, basically, it is a universal law for the whole church and for all those who are in positions of authority whether they be clerics or lay people of international movements, to hold them accountable, to ensure that they are carrying out their ministry, their work in a way that protects victims of abuse or potential victims of abuse, that ensures justice for those who have been victims of abuse. It creates a legal framework.
1: The initial document, which was promulgated in 2019, shortly after the Vatican's summit on sexual abuse referred to vulnerable persons. The revised language is now vulnerable adults. What does that mean? What does this change signify?
2: Well, first of all, what is the document about? It's about procedures for dealing with allegations of abuse. So it lays out in a very clear way who has responsibility for dealing with these allegations once they are made. It also states clearly that every diocese, an eparchy, which would be in the Eastern Church, must have a structure or an office where people can make their allegation.
1: And that's a specific revision in this document, because before this, dioceses were asked to have procedures in place. Now they're actually being told they need to have a physical structure in place to deal with allegations of abuse within the diocese, archdiocese, eparchy, Or religious organization.
2: I think it's important that our audience understands that this is the first fruit of that world meeting of the President of Bishops' Conference and the heads of religious orders that the Pope held in February 2019 in Rome. He called them all together to discuss how to protect
1: children. And issued this document just three months later, right? In May 2019, the first version of this document came out.
2: This was the first fruit of that conference because that conference focused on accountability was one of the key words. To have accountability, you have to have somebody who is accountable. So who is accountable when an allegation is made. And here it says it can be a cardinal bishop, be a patriarch priest, a head of a religious order, men or women, and it can be the ones in charge of the international lay movements, men or women. So it's a broad spectrum. In other words, those who are exercising authority at a given moment for the period in which they exercise that authority, they are accountable for And will be held accountable and responsible for dealing properly with abuse or allegations of abuse. And once they have received information or have come to know of the abuse, the law states that they have an obligation to act immediately.
1: So-called mandatory reporters.
2: They have to report to either the senior bishop in the area, the metropolitan bishop, or to the Vatican office. There's a roadmap of accountability in this document.
1: We should also remember the document does require that allegations of abuse be reported to civil authorities as well.
2: Yes, the report says you have to respect the laws of the land. And so in the United States, it's very clear what you have to do. The person who is responsible has that responsibility to act. He cannot or she cannot simply cover up, ignore, or hand over the responsibility to someone else. Without giving instruction to act, it is a very clearly defined task for anybody in a situation of responsibility in the church. The first big abuse cases in the United States began to be denounced in 1985. So it took them from 1985 to 2019 to arrive at such a clear universal law for the church. You had the charter in the United States after 2002.
1: That was the Dallas Charter.
2: The Dallas Charter, you had in other countries, you had something similar, but in many countries you had nothing. And here now, the Pope has said, this is not just for Anglophone world, it is for the whole Catholic Church.
1: So the Church is learning from best practices of its experience across the world. One of those is the protection of those who submit Reports of abuse, right? And so, what does the document say about anybody who comes forward to report abuse?
2: They are to be welcomed. They're to be accepted. They're to be given whatever assistance that's needed. It may be psychological or medical at the time. And what they tell the person they report. This is to be documented. The documentation is to be protected against destruction, as we've seen in the past in some situations, destruction of files. We also see that a gag order has been put in the past in the church on people who make allegations. When a person comes and makes an allegation, nobody in the church will silence this person. That person can go to the media that person can go to the police. There are no restrictions. There's no intimidation of the witnesses or of the person making the accusation.
1: Whereas in the past, some people would have come to a financial agreement and would have signed a non-disclosure agreement that they would not disclose their abuse publicly. Now that is no longer allowed.
2: Absolutely. There have been cases in the past where bishops, priests interviewed or received allegations from young people and they imposed silence on these young people. This is no longer the case. The procedures also envisage that the person who makes the allegation gets to know what's happening to his allegation. This is very important because in the past you made an allegation and then it kind of went into a black hole and you didn't know what happened. It's a respect for the dignity of people, this document.
1: So, I mean, this really shows the church's commitment to ongoing reform, right? One of the things I hadn't realized when it was issued in May 2019, is that it had been issued on an experimental basis. So for three years, this document was going to be tested in the real world, as it were, before it was officially promulgated into church law, which this revision that Pope Francis issued this past Saturday now makes clear that it is official church law.
2: In fact, after the three years had passed, Remember, we had the period 2019, and then we had COVID-20 20 and 21.
1: Yeah, so it was in fact four years in the end.
2: Yes. Since the Pope hadn't renewed it, some people were saying, well, now the law is dead. But that was not the case. And now the Pope has made it universal law. But in the revision, he has taken into account the input from bishops' conferences in many countries, from organizations, from the Vatican offices. The Input from three years of experiencing with this. And one of the things that came out of that was that while the 2019 text asked every diocese, every bishop of every diocese, to establish a structure in his diocese by July 2020, so they were given one year to establish instructions, perhaps only one third of them had managed to do this because they didn't have the resources, they didn't understand it. But now they're going to be provided with resources. And they're going to have a very clear explanation. And nobody will, at the end of the day, be able to say, I didn't know what I was to do. Nobody can appeal to ignorance because it's his task or her task to know what they should do. And the victims of abuse now have a much stronger defense within the church's own system to defend them.
1: And of course, I mean, that's a big stumbling block, right? Many parts of the world did not have the resources, neither the intelligence nor the economic resources, to deal with sexual abuse at the local level. So this is hopefully going to give them some more resources to be able to do that.
2: Yes. And another fact is that many of them said, well, this doesn't happen in my diocese. Many bishops in many parts said, well, we don't have this problem. It's a problem for the Western world or other parts of the world, but not for our. And now each one is being asked to really, you verify in your own terrain, this area where you're responsible for, as a diocese, as a religious order, or as an international lay movement. Has this happened? Because it's well known that people have taken 20, 30, 40 years before they have actually come forward to say, I was
1: abused. Jerry, another reason why this three years has been really important in terms of revising this law is that we have seen new kinds of abuse come to the fore, as in the case of religious who are being abused by their superiors, as in the case of international lay movements we saw with the shocking revelations of abuse by Jean Vanier, the founder of Lush. So this new document, the revision, takes into account these new forms of abuse And the discoveries that we have made since May 2019 in this whole world of sexual abuse, abuse of power within the church.
2: Yeah, this kind of abuse was going on for a long time. But what's happened is it's come to light what was happening. There's been abuse, sexual abuse, abuse of conscience, and abuse of power. The triple abuse that Francis has so clearly identified and targeted, and which he says a lot of it is a result of clericalism and the cover up within the old boys' club, as it were, in the church. And this is dismantling that clericalism. This is helping to dismantle the clericalism in the church. But it's not just clericalism. It's abuse of authority, also outside the clerical world.
1: In many ways, abuse by lay leaders is more difficult to police, right? I mean, priests are accountable, supposedly at least at a notional level, to their bishop, and then the bishops further on up the chain until we get to Pope Francis. It's much more difficult when you have somebody, a lay leader of an international lay movement, who does not have reporting responsibility directly up the chain of command.
2: Well, this is a very important point to make, Ricardo, that we have now many international lay movements in the church, some of them with very many members. What you've had in the past has been a leadership in several of the lay movements, which didn't really change over years, even decades. And there are some lay movements which have had leaders who have been 10, 20, 30 years in charge. Over the past two years, uh, the Pope has issued legislation and it has insisted that the leadership has to change in the lay movements. And so you're elected for one five-year period or one three-year period and a second one, but after that, no more. And that's very important because it introduces a new level of changing leadership. So whereas if you had a leadership that goes on for five, 10 years, 20 years, there could be a lot of cover up there. We have seen, for example, in Peru, in the case of the sodalitium Lay movement, where the founder, the head of the movement, has been now penalized by the church because they found out after many years there was a lot of abuse. So I think it's important to understand that correction is being made in many different ways. So ensuring the change of the leadership of the lay movements prevents this possibility of cover-up. It makes it much more difficult because you have new leaders who can come in and they can say, ah, we've discovered this. And then they have their responsibility. You are responsible for the time you are in charge, not for other periods, the time you are in charge.
1: What does this new document leave out, or where can it go further yet?
2: Well, one of the questions that many people have raised is we see a bishop resign maybe at the age of mid 50s, early 60s, long before the age of 75. The reason not explained. And sometimes later you discover the reason was this person either covered up or was directly involved in abuse. Now, people are saying there should be proper disclosure of the motives for forced resignation or early resignation of people. Some of the canon lawyers here say, well, those who need to know should know, should be given the information. But this doesn't mean the whole world needs to know. So it's it's a question of respecting the victim in the first place, the survivor, but also respecting the perpetrator. Should the person be open to name and shame? Is that necessary? Is that in the best interests of human dignity?
1: Well, I mean, we've seen that where bishops or where priests were not known to be abusers, they were moved and shifted, and abused elsewhere. And so, I think there is something about making public the names of those who have been credibly accused, or those credibly found to have abused.
2: Well, they said, you know, it's one thing what can be happening in the United States; it's another thing what might happen in a country where the church is in a very difficult situation, how the state may use this.
1: Yeah, as we saw last week with Pope John Paul II and the accusations of cover-up of abuse in the time of communism.
2: In making a, a universal law, you know, it's not one size fits all, all the time.
1: And it has to be publicly understood and I think sort of digested at the local level as we saw just this past weekend, right? Was it the Bishop of Osnabrück who resigned because he admitted that he had mishandled cases of abuse in his diocese?
2: This was as a consequence of of a public investigation into what had happened in the diocese. And he admitted, he says, yes, what they say is right. I have mishandled cases. In other words, he hadn't lived up to the standards of vos estes, you're the light of the world. And he felt, well, in the best interests of my people, I resign. There may be others who will follow. Look, this is a work in progress, Ricardo. Nobody says the law as issued now is the final word. We may find that in another two years, Francis may well make another amendment to this law in the light of new understanding, in the light of new demands. And the church says, you know, the church ecclesia semper reformandum. The church is always being reformed. And this is true also of its legislation.
1: The church has certainly moved strides on this, right? And the promulgation of laws is one way in which it's done that. But now what needs to happen is really for these laws to be enacted at the local level and for people, bishops, priests, international mm-hmm. leaders of labour movements to take this law seriously and actually apply it. Over these years, we will see what will happen. Jerry, thank you for your time. We have much more to discuss on this matter, and I'm sure that this is not the last time, very sadly, that we will discuss sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. But hopefully, it'll become less and less of a conversation topic as laws like this take effect. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Ricardo.
1: Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Audio engineering by Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Kevin Jackson, Christabel Spillman, and Vivian Richards. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. This show was recorded in the William J. Loshit Studio at America Media in New York, and also at the studio of the Jesuits International Headquarters in Rome. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, follow us on Twitter at INSDE, Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second eye, Vatican Pod. Also follow me on Twitter at Rick that's R I C D S S J, and Jerry at Jerry O'Rome, that's G E R R Y O R O M E. We also ask you consider becoming a digital subscriber of America Magazine. Go to americamagazine.org forward slash subscribe it's easy to do, and the best ways to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Ricardo da Silva. We'll see you next time.
0: Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.